Did anybody share my frustration at 10 o'clock on any given night this week when you sit down to watch Sports Center and the first 15 minutes of what they cover is somebody scratched their junk in a baseball game and somebody has a possibility that there might be some sort of an NFL tra- and you think to yourself, the entire planet is engaged in a tournament and we're getting baseball. Did anybody feel that? Nobody, nobody felt that. Luke, Luke and I, we're, I'm feeling you, buddy. I'm feeling you. So I'm trying to be as sarcastic and as nasty as I can on Facebook, on social media. The whole globe gets it, guys. I don't understand. Sometimes I feel, and you know me if you know me, sometimes I feel like I live in exile in this country. It's the truth. It's true, Johnny. I'm telling you. So I'll come over to Johnny's house. And Are you a soccer fan, Johnny? No, you're not a soccer fan. You're sorry. I, you're, you're right about that part. You are sorry. That's right. Good morning. Welcome to ANC. Thanks for being here. Um, did you guys meet Scott and Mike, our friends from D.C.? Wave, guys. I'm going to pick on you because... I met you first. You know, you know how you can tell who's visiting at ANC? They're on time. And what, and what are they doing? What are they doing? They're sitting down in their seat and they're looking at the bulletin like there's something really deep and meaningful there. And they're trying not to get noticed. So if you want to help us greet and make people feel welcome, I dare you. Just come in on time and find who's sitting down because they're not from here. Right? So anyhow, I met Scott and Mike. These guys are, do you guys know uh, Mark Batterson? He's a pastor in D.C.? wrote an amazing book called Circle Maker, right, and a bunch of other things, a, a, a super neat national influence. And these guys are here. God has called them to do something here, so you should get to know Scott and Mike cause, uh, just because you should. So welcome. Welcome. It's good to have you guys. I'm Jason. You guys probably know that. Um, let's let's uh, soundboard a little bit because that's kind of how we like to do things here. We've been in First John for oh, about 300 years, it seems like, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're at Chapter 2. We're making our way. We might be done by Christmas of 2016, as the, the, way, it's, the way it's going. Give me, give me some feedback. Have you, have you been devotionally sort of focusing on that at home, or have you been off into other things and we're hearing about this just on Sundays? Or what are you, what are you hearing from St. John? Because this is a, or St. John, First John, this is a very repetitive book. I think maybe, maybe you've caught that by now. Anybody, what are you getting? Tell me what you're getting. Anybody brave? Bring it, bring it to the light. Bring what to the light, Christy? You got something to bring to the light? <laughs> everything bring it to the light who's john let's let's backfill yeah probably the closest friend of jesus right 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 so he's writing to who well, he's writing to church, and he's the elder statesman, right? I mean, he even talks to him as, you know, my children, and he talks about himself as an elder. So John is the guy in the Dan Brown painting. Did you catch that? The, the Da Vinci painting. Uh, leaning on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. John is probably in that closed circle of 12. There's an inner circle of three, of which probably Jesus and John were, were super tight. Who does Jesus say while he's on the cross, hey, look after my mama? All right, okay, so you're getting a picture of who we're talking about. So in his waning years, being the only disciple that probably died of natural causes for whatever reason, the rest of them were strung up or cooked or, or torn apart or what they paid dearly. John is, is, is living out a relatively normal life. And for whatever reason, he writes this letter back to churches that were gathering back in Ephesus with some very urgent things. I think this is part of the repetition in the book of First John. He's repetitive because it's very important. So what are some of those themes? Let's talk about those. You said bring it to the light. What else? What are we hearing? What's he going to boil everything down to? Has anybody, anybody got a lock on that? 
could be, yeah. Sure. Yeah, could be. Could be very much, yeah. What is it that he's constantly reminding them? Right. So John is going to resolve everything into fellowship, isn't he? Into brotherly love, right? We know this is where he's going. And he tells us this. He drops all these points along the way. Um, let, let, let's read through First John 2. And I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it from the CEB, which is the Common English Bible. And the reason for that is because the scholar who did the work on the book of First John is actually a friend of mine at Seattle Pacific University who's part of our sort of family. And he did some excellent work. And you're going to notice a couple of things where they're going to you know, notice a couple of words, um, but it's very much like the NIV in its reliability, only a little better as in its treatment of gender. So if you'll allow me that, I'm going to read from the CEB. Is that okay, women in the crowd? Man, y'all are quiet. <laughs> this must be Texas, Trey, just saying. First uh, John 2, 18, 27. Read along in your version. Let's just, just pick it up there in verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, John writes. Just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. This is how we know that it is the last hour. How? Because of the appearance of the Antichrists, right? Now, if you grew up in the 80s like me and you know what chick tracks are, you were scared to death of the Antichrist. First, we thought it was Boris Nelson. Then some people thought it was Ronald Reagan. You know, you know the deal, right? It's got to be five letters, all this crazy stuff. That's not at all what John is saying, as you're going to see. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really part of us. If they had been part of us, they would have stayed with us. See, John is writing to a church that had been divided by some false teaching. Remember, this is a key point. He's writing back in the rearview mirror saying, guys, listen, don't be fooled by these people coming saying other stuff, okay? This is the key. And you're going to hear this woven all the way through. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. This is different than a lot of what Paul wrote. Paul wrote letters to people who were who are completely astray. John is writing back and saying, you know the truth. Don't be, don't be led astray, okay? You know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? Isn't it the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This person is the Antichrist. And that's not what I was taught in the 80s, right? The person who denies the humanity of Jesus is operating, according to John, in the spirit of the Antichrist, Right? The one who denies the Father and the Son. You see, these two things go together, right? The Father and the Son. We, looking back through history, we can make sense of this because we have this robust language that helps us understand how it is that we believe in a Trinitarian God expressed in Father, Son, and Spirit. But remember, at the time of John, this stuff hadn't been ironed out yet. And he's writing back saying, listen, guys, to hold the Father without holding the truth of the Son is to hold neither of the two, right? If you are able to understand this man, Jesus Christ, that we call the Christ, the one that we've waited for, then that must reconcile with your thoughts about the Father or one of the two things is not, is, 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 is not on, see? So he's writing back for a very specific theological reason saying we need to clarify how you think about Christ and what that means about the Father. Okay, there's the, there's the cliff notes for you. Everyone who denies the Son, verse 23, and de- everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now just for a moment, imagine with me how scandalous and difficult this is to understand some 40 years after Christ had died on the cross. See, what we knew was that Christ was the son of Mary and John and however weird that, or uh, Mary and Joseph and however strange that coming together was and however peculiar and how early and how controversial that was, we know Jesus to have been a man if you're at this time, right? And yet there's this ancient idea of God that came down through the generations and how you hold these two things together is critical. John is saying, go back 
to what you were taught in the beginning and hold to that because false teachers will try to get you to go, to go astray. Verse 24, as for you, when you heard from the beginning, what you heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will also remain in relationship to the Son and the Father. Okay. This is the promise that he himself gave us. What is it? It's eternal life. Beginning now. I write these things to you about those who are attempting to deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you receive from him remains on you. You don't need anyone else to teach you the truth. You're getting the texture here in the repetition. But since his anointing teaches you about all things, it's true and it's not a lie. Remain in relationship to him just as he taught you. And just tweeting ahead and stealing Trey's thunder, hoping Trey gets to teach chapter 4. Just to make the point even clearer, John says in chapter 4 of the same book. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, he says. Test the spirits to see if they are from God because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you know if a spirit comes from God. Here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come as a human is from God. Okay, your translation might say as a man. Here's the catch. To hold what we know to be true about God and to hold the fact that it was perfectly and ultimately expressed in this human being, Jesus Christ, is the crux of the matter, right? This is what John is harping on. He's obsessed about the incarnation of Christ because apparently those behind him back at Ephesus where he had apostled some works, were swerving and were beginning to wonder how human was he actually. See, because there's, there's two things that we have to be able to, we, we got to stay between the poles of heresy that say either Jesus was just all God and he only looked like a man. That was a huge part of Christian history thought that. Or the other pole that says, no, no, he was a man. We call him the son of God, but really he was just a man. You can't be both God and man. And I think what the Bible is trying to say here, or certainly John is trying to say, is that these two things belong together. They were ultimately expressed in the union of this God-man, Jesus Christ. Okay, now this is going to push us to some interesting conclusions because my guess is that, like me, you live in this odd tension between what you know and confess to be true about God and what you love so much about Jesus and how these two things operate together. I, wanna, I just want to lean into that briefly this morning as we're on our way. Okay, this is what obsesses John that the people have forgotten the humanity of Christ. Nobody would have known it better than John. Nobody would have understood the man, Jesus, better than John, as far as we can tell. What does it mean to say that Jesus is human? A couple of things. Number one, that he completely understands us. Do you ever feel sometimes like you're stuck and there's no way that God could turn his face to you because whatever you're struggling with is just so human and so carnal and so fleshly and God must just go ick because you go ick and then you realize, no, 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 wait, wait. Jesus completely understands where we live. That's important because if he doesn't and if we don't believe he does, then we're just stuck out here, aren't we? And that's not what the gospel says. It's important to believe, to, to confess his humanity. Number one, because he, it, he completely understands us. Number two, it's important to understand that when God needed to get something done, material matter, your, grab your hand, grab your fingers, grab your arm, look at the chair you're sitting on, look at the world around you. The only world we know, which is the world we can perceive, is, is important enough and it's good enough stuff for God to put it on to get through to us. See how that makes a difference? Sometimes what we believe can become so cerebral and disconnected from our bodies and the world we live in that it's really just this collection of big ideas in our head. What John is trying to say, no, Jesus was a man like you and me. He understands us, and this is good stuff. In fact, this was so good that it became God's perfect hiding place. 
God's perfect disguise was the son of a carpenter born on the margin in a nation that was occupied by one of the worst global powers the country or the world has ever, had ever seen in terms of cruelty. It's important to understand that that was a perfect hiding place. 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure it out. How was it? What does it mean? We're still arguing. We're still writing books about this, right? We're still, we're still wondering and, and drawing lines in the sand and saying, how could that have been? How could it have been? I wonder, question, open question for you. Does God still hide in the people around you? Have you ever thought about it that way? Are the people around you, is that person you're married, don't look, don't look next to you because they're sitting right, is that person you're married to God's perfect hiding place? Have you encountered the face of Jesus and the people you love and the people around you? What do you think about that? Have you ever thought about that? If we wait long enough, we know Trey and Christy will chime in. What about the rest of you? I can feel Christy wanting to jump in. I can feel it, Christy. <laughs> Talk to me about that. What do you think about that? Do you look at the world that way? Not exactly. Yeah. Isn't it? That might change how we do life, right? That might change how we flow in and out. That might change how you tip your waitress. Right? might change how you treat your mechanic. It might change how you treat your children. Zip that because all of mine are in the room, I think. No, I got about 22 that are still across the hall. How many do we have now, honey? I don't even remember. Something like that. I know they're all girls, and they mostly are hungry all the time. What does it mean? What would it mean? What would it mean to look at every human soul you come encounter with and understand that that is God's perfect hiding place? What do we say... What do we mean at ANC when we say, you want to encounter Jesus, go find him in the face of the poor. Go find him in the eyes of the homeless and the poor. What do we mean by that? God is hiding there. And it's just enough out of sight to where we overlook it, isn't it? And we say, no, 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 no. That's brokenness and addiction, and that smells like street junk. No, that's not. No, no, no. What I'm telling you is that God has a habit of hiding in the people around us. In fact, it's his ultimate hiding place. It happened in the midst of a group of people who were hoping for a Messiah to overturn the political reality of the day. And he was so deeply hidden that the night before it all went down in Jerusalem, they still didn't get it. And key players are still cutting off body parts of people who are threatening their assumed outcome, right? You get the picture. So deeply hidden. So deeply hidden in those around us. Here's what I think would happen if we changed how we looked at people. We might treat every soul as sacred ground because God is hiding there. Even if... You're rooting for Brazil. It's hard to imagine. But if you're rooting for Brazil, there's got to be a little speck of God in you somewhere. If you come from Latin America, where I come from, we can't stand Brazil. Why? It's like it's the same reason the Red Sox don't like the Yankees, because they always win, right? That's kind of a deal. Sorry about that. You get a lot to my brokenness, don't you? Every soul is sacred. I don't care whether they're in the church or out of the church. And here's my challenge to you. You will often find God more present in those who haven't learned how to pretend like us. Can I say it that way? We've got this whole language system. We've got this whole filter deal. We've got this whole, we've got a battery of responses at the ready when somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm doing great. We hide from ourselves. And sometimes your neighbor across the street who knows that, 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 it's over if he walks out tonight, and it's going to get crazy if you speak up. And all of this tension people live in, sometimes those people are, 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 are the place where God is hiding. And, and, and I just think if we think about that differently, it might, it might change what we do. It might change 
how we pursue things versus people, right? Isn't that next thing what it's going to take to make you happy? My guess is it's not. Many of us, including myself, and I'm speaking from my own brokenness here, we just have this, I just got to get that next thing and then it's all going to be right. Just that next little, that next accolade, that next degree, that next toy, that next whatever that thing is. And in reality, I think you know this to be true because you've heard words from people's deathbed, right? You know what they're talking. They're not talking about the latest van or the latest LED screen TV. They're not talking about a new couch. They're not talking about a trip to wherever. They're talking about those moments of touching people, right, and being present to people around them. So let me read, let me read from a book. It's a, it's a book that I've been devouring recently, and it's kind of surfacing. It's a little, uh, yeah, just, if you read it, just read it with a grain of salt. He doesn't write from an evangelical perspective. Richard Rohr is a devotional Catholic writer, and so you just need to know that. So if you get a little squeamish on that edge, then um, read Barefoot Church, I guess. Um, so Richard, Richard Rohr, he writes, and everything belongs. And this just, this just went off in my soul like a cannon shot in a cave. And if you know what I mean by that, it's just reverberating, right? Listen, the spiritual world is perfectly revealed in the physical world. That is the Christ icon. That's why Jesus is so important. He makes visible the hiding place of God. His body is the revelation of the essential mystery. The material world is the hiding place of God, he repeats. If we get it in Jesus, we get it. God is perfectly hidden, but once the scales have been taken from our eyes, God is also perfectly revealed, and we see the divine image in, now watch this, in all material things. And you're like, whoa, 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 that sounds new age. Listen. Once those scales have been, have been pulled away from our eyes and we're opened and we see God's presence around us and those and the things around us, there's no stopping where that goes, right? But just as it was hard to see the divine image in Jesus, it's hard to see it in ordinary folks like us, isn't it? It's hard to see it. Can you see it? God is hiding in physical reality, in politics, in feelings, in poverty, in disease, in childbirth, and even in death. Without his hidden presence, we are in utter exile here. God's perfect hiding place. So, here's what John is saying. Number one, this one that, we, that we're talking about, this Jesus Christ, this is the one that we've been waiting for. Now, for many people in the day when John was writing this, the problem was they had this huge concept of what that looked like, and it didn't look anything like this carpenter. So who, who, who is John saying needs to do the reconciling here? We do. Here's the deal. The portal into seeing who God is, is this man, Jesus Christ. It's the only lens we have. And I might add, it's the only lens we need. So here's my concern today. What sort of myths about the Father have we chosen to believe? Or another way of saying that would be, what sort of myths about the Father would a closer look at Jesus Help us debunk. This is John's obsession. You got no son. You got no father if you can't understand the son. So let's go there, okay? What are some of the myths? Now, now I, just, I want to be very careful as I say this. Some of us did not inherit a very good head start when it comes to dealing with God the Father. Why? Well, because we were dealt a father, an earthly father, that wasn't helpful in some ways. In many ways... Did everything they needed to do. But in some ways, it's almost impossible for some of those around us to look past that earthly image and see God the Father as something good. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that sometimes it's not good news to say God is a loving Father? 
Because for many people, that whole category is blank, if not terrifying. So thinking about that, that's not my case exactly. But I'm sensitive to the fact that there's many people's case around this. Myth number one. If Jesus is the lens to the Father, let's reconcile our thoughts about the Father by looking at what we know to be true about Jesus. Myth number one, that God is distant and unconcerned about our lives. Maybe that describes the Father you had. And maybe some of us live our lives in such a way that we think he's just not paying attention. Right? How do we know this isn't true? We know this can't be true because Jesus was born to a virgin who was a teenager in the socioeconomic backwaters of an empire who was crushing a nation, who was small and it couldn't even defend itself. We know know from the teachings of Jesus that even the sparrows of the air and the flowers of the field matter. We know from the teachings of Jesus that the hairs on your head are even counted, right? So if we live with this sense that God is distant, let's reconcile that through Jesus, who was very present. He was very present. The book of Luke, chapter 12, writes... Uh, reads, aren't five sparrows sold for two small coins, yet not one of them is overlooked by God? We have loads of sparrows in this part of Texas, right? Loads of them. They all look the same, and yet God knows every single one. Even the hairs on your head are counted. For some of you, that's easy. For some of that's a little more difficult. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows, Luke writes. writing to a people trying to figure out how Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the same thing as this 30-year-old rabbi who was revolutionary and deeply disappointing in the end. Reconciling those two things is everything in our faith. It's everything. It's the whole sum of discipleship. It's all the work we have to get done from now until we check out. Because Jesus was so earthly, and he was so earthy, and he was so present, and he was so real, and he hung with real folks like us. So let's blow up that myth that says God doesn't care and that God is distant. He notices every move you make. One of my favorite sermons I ever heard uh, Judah Smith preach at Lakewood was he talked about how God, while you sleep, is standing back with his arms crossed just looking at you saying, look at that. Look, I can't wait till that wakes up. Look at that. That is my boy. That's my girl right there. I think that's true. I know that's true. And if that's not true for you, I'm, I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to move that needle gently on you this morning. Everything you do matters. Everything you do is noticed. Everything you do gets God's attention. Do you live that way? Wow, wouldn't it be crazy if we could? Myth number one, God is distant. Myth number two, that God is angry. How much of the preaching that we have given supposedly to people who need Jesus has come packaged in little angry, nasty packages of God is ticked at you because you blew it? Does that summarize your upbringing at all? Because it summarizes parts of mine. We believe that God the Father is angry, that Jesus had to come and fix some big problem that we, we made, right? That sort of theology that says we got ourselves in some legal issue and it's going to take a lawyer or Jesus himself to come and fix it. Here's the deal. Jesus was angry on rare occasions, but let's remember who with, right? Now, these aren't, this isn't an exhaustive list. These are just my reflections this week. We believe God is angry. We know this can't be true because Jesus draws to himself sinners and messed up people, right? And somehow does it without ever needing to get angry at whatever it is they had done to mess up their lives. One of my favorite, you could pick a thousand, one of my favorite little episodes that talks about Jesus in this tension 
is in the book of John, chapter 21, when Peter, the leader of the twelve, had fallen completely on his face. Not only did he cut off an ear of a soldier the night in the garden, but he denied him three times to a little girl who probably couldn't whoop him anyway, right? Like, what are you thinking, Peter? He leads the disciples away and says, guys, let's go back and do what we know how to do. What was that? Let's go fishing, right? Jesus raises from the dead. Peter's not the first to get it. The women see it first. Peter's hiding. He's so nervous. This is not a very successful launch in his leadership, right? So confused and so lost and so looking for his way, they get their nets in their boat and they go back and do the only thing they know to do, which is fish. And they can't catch a minnow all stinking night. And Jesus shows up on the shore and he starts a fire. Listen to this. Now, you tell me God is angry if this is Jesus' attitude to his primo leader falling on his face spectacularly. Watch what he says. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, this is after Jesus calls him out of the boat. Peter jumps in. He knows he's going to get it, right? He knows he's going to get a, a, an earful. When they'd finished eating, now just listen to the softness of Jesus. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon asked, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus had asked him a third time. He's getting it now, right? Do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Does that look like an angry God to you? We fall flat on our faces and we swerve completely off the path. We do everything that he's been preparing us for three years to do this thing and we can't even figure out how to get it started. We go back to the only thing we know. You know what the, I don't know what it is for you. It's not fishing for me. But what is that thing you go back to for comfort? What is your medication? What is your space where you go when you're tired and fatigued and you're overworked and you're emotionally frustrated and you're spiritually empty and you're physically wasted? Where do you go? Because in that place, I'm just going to tell you, God's response to you is not anger. I know that's crazy to say that. We think that, don't we? Don't we live that way? Or is it just me? Maybe it's just me. Maybe y'all are all good. But I'm telling you, God is not angry. Jesus was not the, the, not the answer to an angry God who was ticked off at a planet. Jesus is the ultimate and final period at the end of the sentence that expressed God's posture towards a dying world, which was ultimately love and rescue. How have we traded it for something so harsh? I have no idea. Let's reconcile our thoughts of the Father through the lens of Jesus. Myth number three, that he's primarily concerned about our behavior. Don't we think this? Don't we? Three brave people shook their head. And Christy, thank you, Christy. Where have you been all morning, Christy? I love Christy on the front row. That he's primarily concerned with our behavior. let's, Let's just rip this out of the water. Let's just talk straight to this. Because again, looking through the lens of Jesus, was Jesus obsessed with behavior? Look at the ragtag group of people that hung with Jesus in his orbit. Now think about it. Of the 12, you've got three of these guys, as best we know, were political activists who were just revolutionaries looking for a new donkey to ride into town, right? Completely frustrated that Jesus doesn't overthrow the Romans. Totally convinced that this is going to be their day in the sun. They're arguing about where they get to sit on the right and the left hand. These guys didn't get any of it, right? They didn't get it. But one of my favorite, one of my favorite little lenses to the Father looking at what Jesus did here would be in Luke 7. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with them. You know the story. After he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. Question, 
How would the woman who was a sinner know the social calendar of the Pharisee? Did you ever ask that? It was before Facebook, so a little bit before Facebook. I wonder, how did she know? Interesting. Maybe she was a regular. Who knows? She brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster, and standing behind him, behind Jesus, at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured the oil on them. When the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw, of course, we, you know, you have, to have, you have to have some religious indignation, right? Because this is all about being right, isn't it, right? Watch. This guy gets so caught in the trap. One of the other gospel writers calls, gives his name Simon. Um, Luke conceals the guilty by not giving us his name, which I would have been grateful for, but I wouldn't want to be this guy. But when the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman he is touching he would know that she is a sinner. <clears throat> Who's the sinner here? The Pharisee, wouldn't you say? Now, before we get all high and mighty, let's remember, if Jesus was obsessed with behavior, he probably would have had a problem with this. But let's remember, that's not his focus, was it? And what catches his attention is the nose in the air of the guy who acted like he couldn't possibly conceive of how this filthy woman could touch you. That's the whole point. This is how he flies under the radar is because he comes and he touches the stuff that nobody was supposed to touch, like you and like me. Is God obsessed with your behavior? God is obsessed with your heart. God wants all of you, nothing left over, and he will have all of you in good time, and he's going to take plenty of time getting there. And my hope is that we don't become a kind of people who cower from God because we're so afraid because we go back to those things we know and we assume that he's ticked off and that he's angry and that he's just watching what we do wrong. That's not the God Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's not, and if Jesus is the door to the Father, as John writes, then we've got to reconcile that image, guys. I know some of us, and I hate to even get near this 40,000-volt cable, but some of us as fathers tend to be that kind of presence in our homes, don't we? We are verbal when somebody crosses a line, and otherwise we are non-present. Guilty as charged. That's not how the Father works. Grab that in your heart and hold on to that. That is not how the Father works. Myth number four. We're going to wrap this up. And this one is huge for me, and I don't know if it's huge for you. But we think that God withdraws from us in shame when we swerve and when we bobble. We even say it, don't we? Well, I was far from God. at the time. You weren't far from God. You weren't far from God when you were in sin. You weren't far from God before you could pronounce his name. You weren't far from God when nothing but evil was on your lips. You weren't far from God when you were killing Christians in Damascus and looking for permission to take all their heads off young Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. It's a myth, it's a linguistic myth that communicates the wrong image about God, and that is that he cowers and pulls away in shame from us. Let me just tell you, God is never nearer than he is right now, and he has never been any less near ever to you. Can you sit with that? Because that might rock your world. I sit on my deck in the back of my yard trying to get hummingbirds to come to my hummingbird feeder. I, can't, I, I know you guys get them, but I can't get them. But anyway, I sit back there and I think about all the years I have spent worried and, and wondering, is God pleased with my behavior? Is God distant? Have I walked away? We look at these decisions. That I was just in a conversation la- late last night with one of my former interns on the text who's worried about this person that he's in love with, who thinks he's in love with, and is she the one? Is she not the one? So concerned that if he makes a choice that goes one inch out of God's will, that he's going to be forgotten by God and God will pull away in shame. And I just wonder, is that ever really the case? Go left. 
God's guy went left, God's with you. Go right, God's man went right, and God's with you. How hard is that to figure out? Well, we've got some reconciling to do because that's not how we look at the Father, is it? Okay. I know we're pushing it kind of weird today. It's not really a Brandon-style sermon. It's okay. Brandon's at the beach from what I understand. Probably my favorite glimpse into the heart of the Father is this one here in Luke, or in John 8. And just let this, let this sit with you, okay? Let this just... Remember, the movement of the Son is the movement of the Father. Every, every turn, every gesture, every genuflect, every stand-up, sit-down move, yell, scream, hug, all of this is the Father, okay? This is, this is God. This is the only God that we have access to through Jesus Christ. This is the whole deal. Now watch what he does. John 8, verse 1. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple, and all the people gathered around him, and he sat down and he taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. You know the story. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. And Jesus, now watch what he does. Remember, this is the movement of the Father. Jesus bent down and he wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and he replied, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. Bending down again. Now, who's he bending towards? This stuff, the earth, right? Where the broken, humiliated, almost about to lose her life woman is in her worst vulnerable, broken spot. No defense. There is no defense in that place. Have you ever been there? There is nothing that you can say that will better what's going on because you are that broken. The bus ran over you and backed up and did it again, right? He stoops down. He says, you guys figure it out. Let the holy ones throw the stones. They start to guffaw. He stands up. Then he stoops back down. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No, sir. Jesus says, Well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Is that the image of a father who pulls away in shame at our most broken moment? You say, but you don't know the moments. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mess I've made. No, to some degree, it doesn't matter. We serve a God perfectly expressed in this man who stoops in the direction of our brokenness. Just let that wash over your soul because I think this might be just enough to help us look at things differently, right? Certainly approach the world around us differently. You know, on 35 and the frontage, just yesterday, because I've, I feel like the Holy Spirit has told me to keep some cash in my wallet. Isn't that a great thing? Great, profound word from God. Well, it's hard to help people out if you only have a credit card because they can't, like, swipe it, right? I know they can at the little hippie market where, they, you know, you buy homemade jewelry and whatnot. But, like, the guys on the side of the road aren't going to take your card. You've got to have some cash. So I've been trying to carry some cash, and I pulled up, and this guy was so high. He was so high, he could barely tell I was in a car. 
anybody made eye contact and he came over and I thought to myself, how dare I keep that $5 bill in my wallet because my posture to the world must be that of Jesus. It's all I know to be true about the Father. I don't care how that breaks down in belief structures. I don't care who's right or wrong. The bottom line is we're here for one reason only and that's to stoop towards people's brokenness. I saw Jesus in the eyes of a man who never even focused on me. I don't care what he did with that $5 bill. I gave it to Jesus. That's what I did with it, right? So these myths about the Father, John writes back and says, don't be confused. Don't give up on the fact that this was God's man, that this was the perfect expression of God just because it's hard to reconcile with what you think to be true. Throw that out and rethink it through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying. 